Okay, I think we better we better start. I want to start this evening with a couple of quotations, but so that the evening is really going to be devoted to picking up a few of the themes which we talked about last night. One is one quotation here is Buddhist, and one is non-Buddhist. Let's start with the non-Buddhist one first. Um, I think this picks up on some of the themes of last night. Misery is manifold. The wretchedness of earth is multiform, overreaching the wide horizon as the rainbow. Its hues are as various as the hues of that arch, as distinct to yet as intimately blended, overreaching the wide horizon as the rainbow. How is it that from beauty that I have derived a type of unloveliness? From the covenant of peace, a simile of sorrow. But as in either, evil is a consequence of good, so in fact out of joy is sorrow born. Either the memory of past bliss is the anguish of today, or the agonies which are have their origin in the ecstasies which might have been. That's a quotation from Edgar Allan Poe, believe it or not, out of one of his short stories. And here's the Buddhist one. This comes from a very ancient text, um, a text called the Sutta Nipata, which uh, probably is one of the oldest stratas of the Pali Canon. In this, the Buddha says something, I think, quite personal, really, and I think you hear his voice speaking very, very distinctly. Sometimes you don't. It's kind of overlaid with the accretions of centuries. Um, but here's something I think that speaks very, very directly, directly. Fear comes to one who embraces violence. Look at people quarrelling. Let me tell you of the strong agitation that I felt, seeing people struggling like fish in shallow water with enmity towards one another. I became fearful. Wanting a safe place to shelter, I saw that the world lacked substance and there was not one part of it that was changeless. Seeing people trapped in mutual enmity, I grew dissatisfied. But then I saw, buried in their hearts, a barb that was difficult to perceive. It is this barb that impels people to run in all directions. Once it is pulled out, the running ceases, as does the inevitable exhaustion that accompanies it. Now, the Buddha is saying many, many things here, but one of the, um, one of the, perhaps one of the things that comes out of both quotations is we've got a problem. <laughs> Um, the problem is the one that I was identifying last night and really is, I think, perhaps... Well, it is the starting point. It is the starting point of this inquiry. It is the starting point of this investigation. When the Buddha speaks of liberation, he's speaking about very much one thing. Sometimes he says two things. He says, I teach one or two things. I teach dukkha and its overcoming. I teach... In kind of the translated versions, you get, I teach suffering and it's overcoming. So this path to awakening is also a path to the liberation from almost the inevitable dukkha, the inevitable pain, distress, suffering, anguish, misery, all of these synonyms that we could string together, which cover a lot of our experience, not all. I don't want to paint a black picture, a sort of monolithic picture, because not all of our experience is like that. 
However vast array of our experience is, is rooted, as I said last night, in dissatisfaction. Things not being quite right for you. Somehow not feeling that life is giving you what you expected or what you wanted. Um, it's rooted in that. It's rooted in this fundamental sense of agitation that is often there. We have many ways of trying to quell that agitation, of trying to overcome it by ordinary means. Um, I think in the Western world we see it very much in terms of materialism. Materialism is one way of trying to quell the agitation. But interestingly, of course, in this attempt, which is rather a futile attempt to quell the agitation, there seems to be a rise in depressive problems and illnesses and things associated with that, almost as a spin-off of materialism, because even when we get that most desired, precious thing, it somehow doesn't make us happy. It doesn't bring us peace and it doesn't bring us contentment. It's kind of off on to the next thing that we want. And here it might not be just things and material things. It might be another piece of knowledge. might be another friend. This constant desire for stimulation that's often there, which I think is very much indicative of this state that we find ourselves in. Partly this is the reason why I personally don't like the translation of suffering for this, you know, for this basic state. Because to look at an audience like yourselves and go, you're all suffering, it sounds quite heavy. Um, to say you're kind of dissatisfied, you know, things are not quite right, you, know, you didn't sleep well last night, it's been a hard day, it's you know, all the sorts of things that come up in the mind that says it's not quite how I want it to be. It's very much more of that form, as I was trying to indicate last night, than it is of this outright pain. That's not to say that we don't get that. You know, certainly um, tragedies occur for us, and then we perhaps would like to call it suffering. You know, illnesses, people you know, who we're close to dying, even the thought of our own finitude, of our own death, our own mortality. All of these... Yes, are perhaps the bigger end of perhaps what we might label suffering. But an awful lot of our range of experience is not like that. Now, in that quotation I gave you of the Buddha, it says yeah, he perceives a barb that impels people to run in all directions. Yeah, does that sound familiar? Yeah. You've only got to go into one large conurbation in this country to see literally people running in all directions. And the speed of life seems to increase. It says, once this barb is pulled out, then people ceased to do that. And the exhaustion that inevitably accompanies that running around also ceases as well. I think it's a wonderful metaphor for a lot of modern life. I mean, the Buddha is saying this two and a half thousand years ago, and things were a lot less um, stressed than they probably are now. Mind you, having said that, you know, you could look at the Buddha's time and say a time of political unrest, economic uncertainty, changing political parties, um, the crumbling of a society that had been fairly static, and that's the Buddha's India. <laughs> uh, things don't change that much in many ways. 
I mean, obviously, the kinds of material desires that you wanted in ancient India differ from the material desires, perhaps, which are proffered in the modern Western world. The kind of devices we use often are very different to try and quell this um, this distress, this underlying unease, this underlying anxiety that many of us feel. But actually, often the circumstances, given the various changes that we obviously have to make for the different millennia, actually haven't changed that much. There's not a lot that's, that's, that's different. However, what is this barb that the Buddha discerns that really is the heart of all this frenetic activity? What is the barb at the heart of all of this exhaustion that he speaks about? Well, it's the one that he identifies in the second of the ennobling truths. Some of you will know very well, of course, that the Buddha starts off his dispensation, his teaching, with talking about there is a problem. That problem is the one, in a sense, we went into and we've spoken a little bit about already this evening. The problem of dukkha, the problem of suffering, if you want to use the old translation. That sounds pretty bleak in many ways, doesn't it? Um, ancient, you know, commentators in the 19th century, when they first began to study Buddhism, thought it was a pretty pessimistic job. You know, that, you know, basically, Buddhists were saying all life was misery. All life was suffering. Um, and that's the reason why we get this ancient, old translation, is actually through the early Christian missionaries who started to translate these terms. So it became everything was suffering. Uh, they didn't really read on that much further, um, which was there was a cause to it. Yeah, exactly what the Buddha is saying within that quotation, that there is actually a discernible, very direct cause of all of this frenetic running around, this frenetic gathering of friends and enemies and things, um, all of the kind of stuff. I think actually the the wonderful word that covers it all, the stuff that we accumulate. All this accumulation of stuff, be it whether it's mental stuff or physical stuff, you know, all of that is occurring because of the attempt in some way to overcome this sense of dukkha, but in doing that, we exacerbate the problem. We make it even worse. The Buddha has a very direct very direct insight into what is the most obvious, most immediate cause of all of this running around. He calls this, actually I'll use the Pali word first, he he calls it tanha. Tanha means unquenchable thirst. It means an unquenchable thirst. Literally by its very nature, there is no way to satiate this particular thirst whatsoever. If we translate this, it becomes craving. It becomes desire. But this is craving and desire with no ultimate terminal point. Even if all of the kind of material problems in our life were solved, um, done away with, extinguished, whatever, it would still leave us with the problem of craving, wanting something more, wanting something other. There's something that doesn't come across in the English word craving, I don't think, which comes across actually in the Pali word, which is a deep sense of pathos attached to this condition. That we are caught in this trap of wanting something we know not what, ultimately, 
to try and bring about some degree of peace and contentment where we can finally rest and say, that's it. I've got what I really wanted. Have any of you found it? Please tell me if you have. (laughs) Please let me know because it's something that um, is very, very difficult in many senses to find with what I call ordinary mind. With the ordinary mind, the ordinary problem-solving mind that thinks in terms of, okay, if I get that, if I get this very thing, it might be knowledge, it might not be a material thing at all, but often it is in our Western world, that's the way we try to solve this problem is through materiality. But even when I get that, even when I've worked possibly very hard, saved for something that I think really is going to bring a solution to this problem of this underlying unease, I find it doesn't actually do that. I call this if-only-I-had syndrome. Have you ever said this? Any of you ever said this? If only I had such and such, I would be happy. If only I was with so-and-so, I'd be happy. If only I had this perfect understanding, I would be happy. Well, actually, probably, and you can all fill in your sort of little, if only I had X, you can fill in your X for yourself, even when you've got it. I wouldn't say not inevitably, but in most cases, the contentment, the peace, the settling, the ease, doesn't last for very long before you're propelled into the next frantic search for, if only I had X, then I would be happy. And that's what we mean by an insatiable thirst. It has absolutely no terminal point. It's just an endless list, in a sense. And we can probably look back over our lives, no matter how old or how young we are, and probably see quite a number of things that we've wanted to achieve, perhaps, or gain in our lives, and find, of course, that they haven't provided the conditions for this ease and contentment in life that we sought for in supposedly getting them, in acquiring, acquiring that. So the acquisition itself doesn't bring this rest, this ease. You know, basically what we can consider this, this tanha, this craving, this desire to be, is a fundamental disease, which leads to, you know, to this dashing around trying to accumulate in all sorts of ways. So in a sense, this is the problem. This is the problem the Buddha is identifying, that we have this particular barb, this barb of craving. Now, craving is very easy, isn't it, talking about it in terms of acquisition, wanting something. As I said, you can spread that very large over non-material things as well as material things. However, this craving isn't simple. It has a, it's Jaina's face, there are two sides to it. The other side of it is not the craving to have, but the wishing to avoid something. And so the other dimension of our life is spent with vast strategies of avoidance. You know, on the one hand, we're often trying to gain what we want. On the other hand, we're attempting to avoid what we don't wish to happen. We're trying to minimise the pain in our lives to avoid distressing situations. 
painful situations which we literally don't want. We don't want them to happen to us. This is very akin to something Freud called the pleasure principle, which was actually nothing to do with pleasure. It was actually to do with the avoidance of pain. So we're trying to avoid pain, to try and minimise pain in our lives. And on the other hand, we're attempting to gain what we want. And if you like, this is the two polarities that the Buddha identifies as associated with this craving. Because this craving to avoid, as well as the craving to have, is also endless. Think of all your fears and anxieties that you have. The fears and the anxieties are often futural. In fact, fear and anxiety in many senses can't really exist in the present. Fear and anxiety can only exist in a putative future that we have. In the moment our minds move out into thinking what might happen, then there is fear and anxiety. When it's actually dwelling with what is happening, it can't really exist because they're both, in a sense... In terms of their temporality, they're directed towards the future, to what might be. Now, given that and an imagination, (laughs) you can see what we set ourselves up for. Anything could happen. Anything that we could possibly imagine might happen. And so, actually, often in life... Because of what we imagine might happen, there is often a circumscribing, a closing down of the possibilities of what we might do. Because I don't want that to happen, so I'm not going to put myself in a situation where that might possibly happen. So we're all often closing areas of life down in order to make it, and I put this very much in scare quotes, to make it safe. Well, I'm afraid the story or the news is it isn't safe. There really isn't any safety here. There is no certainty. As I was exploring with you last night, the majority of what I said last night obviously was directed to impermanence. There is no safety. There is no guarantee that things will remain this way. In fact, pretty well, they're not going to remain this way. As the Buddha says in that quote, let me just quote it to you again. He says... Wanting a safe place to shelter, I saw that the world lacked substance and that was not one part of it that was changeless. Well, you can relax now. <laughs> yeah, if it's changeless, well, if there's not one part of it that's changeless, you can just relax. You know, it's, there's nothing left to do. You know, joking aside, though, in a sense, it's both scary and it's both... And it also, I think, has an edge of it which leads us well to thinking, well, I don't have to keep trying to make things safe. I don't have to keep trying to look for certainties. Um, As I came across, I'm very fond, I've said it so many times in this room, but I must do it even with you. I came across this little quote, which I wish I'd coined myself, which was, relax, absolutely nothing is under control. (laughs) (laughs) So, and I think really that is the essence of it. There really is nothing under control. We think that our control that we think we have and the reach and range of that control is extremely spurious a lot of the time. It's, you know, as I used an image last night of trying to build a house on shifting sand, if we're trying to build certainties in that way about our lives and others around us, 
we're actually constructing an edifice which is bound to fall down at some point um, because the world changes and the things around us change. So let me just kind of sum up where I've got to and what I've said so far. We have strategies to deal with the uncertainty, which is avoidance. We don't want certain things to happen to us. So we attempt to avoid them. We try to create safe environments, securities for ourselves, certainties in our existence. You know, ordered existence is another one. Having an ordered, safe existence. However, of course, this gets shattered. You know, these often get shattered, particularly by actually what I really would call suffering, by tragedies that happen. You think you've got the nice, safe cosy environment and then something comes along which erupts in the middle of it and actually destroys all the certainties and all the safeties that we think we have so that sense of safety that we have even if we believe we possess it now is often extremely tenuous extremely fragile it doesn't take that much to shatter that which we have on the other hand we're compelled in some senses to search for something that we think is going to also help that to give us some degree of peace and contentment and safety again in this life something that we can actually say I've achieved this, I've got this, I've I've done this but again that as we can see as I was trying to indicate to you is actually a ceaseless search it's a ceaseless endless search The Buddha is really saying, and this is the pathos behind that, there is compulsion behind this. There is an obsessive, compulsive component to trying to search for these things which will give us what we think they don't, what we think they possess, but they don't actually possess. The ability to provide us with peace, contentment, or happiness here. So there's a kind of overinvestment in these objects. You know, we look at the beautiful thing, whatever it might be. I'm just using a material example. We look at the beautiful thing, we think, mm, if I had that, that would really make me happy. You know, really give me happiness. Probably what it will give you, and there's nothing wrong with this, is a great deal of pleasure. But pleasure waxes and wanes. It's also extremely transitory. Because the one pleasurable object is then supplanted by the next pleasurable object. And so it becomes an endless search for pleasure here. And pleasure is very, very different from the sort of peace and contentment the Buddha is saying lies at the end of this path of awakening. The freedom, actually, from compulsion. The freedom in many senses, from everything that we know and is so familiar, but which actually, although it is known and familiar, gives us pain much of the time. We often operate under this false premise, which is better the misery I know than the one I don't, Um, which doesn't make us branch out into exploration, into investigation of alternative ways of living alternative ways of being in this world. And that is what's so radical about this path, this particular path to awakening that the Buddha outlines, 
the role of awareness in this path as well, is it's radical because it's there to, in some senses, well, as I used the term last night, to wake you up, but to shatter the complacencies, which are actually full of either high-rate or low-rate dukkha. They're often riddled with this sense of dissatisfaction, not quite right. All the things I've talked about, I won't go into the endless synonyms again for this, but this sense of this, this not-rightness about the world, the world isn't giving me what, what I want, life isn't providing for me what I want. So his path is a very, very radical path in the shattering of that. But the question, of course, that every individual, whoever I think personally comes to Gaia House or anywhere like this, has to ask themselves is, do I really want to give up all that? Do I want to give up compulsion? In a sense, do I want to give up being driven in this particular way by by these movements of attraction and repulsion, attraction and repulsion? Because this is often what our life consists of. Actually, the Buddha adds in a third category, which is not just attraction and repulsion, but delusion too. So there's a whole delusive aspect to our behavior as well, which actually is confusion as much as anything else. We're just confused, just plain mixed up about an awful lot of things. Um, I often liken this, this whole process, attraction, repulsion, confusion, as being a bit like landing in, you know, being sort of parachuted into a country and you haven't got a map. You don't speak the language. Um, so how do you find your way around? Trial and error, usually. If you learn to speak a little bit of the language, you, you know, pick up on the things that the people who are familiar with the terrain know. But there's still a fundamental underlying, underlying confusion. So being dropped into this terrain without a map, not really speaking the language is what I call being born. (laughs) The only guides you've got are often people as confused as you are. (laughs) You know, they're trying to find their way through the world equally. Um, And they will have learnt something, obviously. We all do as we move through life. But, you know, it's confusion being led by confusion. This is confusionism. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. so for example this particular fundamental delusion here is indicated in the Tibetan Wheel of Life which probably many of you have seen this thing called the Bawa Chakra um, by a blind man leading a blind man yeah. indicating very graphically I think this sense of it's the confused leading the confused the blind leading the blind yeah now, this is different, you know, again, switching metaphors to the Buddha's idea of waking up, seeing things the way they are, really beginning to use that lamp of awareness to shine a light into areas of darkness and confusion, which actually is the fun, one of the fundamental problems that we have. However, to even begin to do that you've got to want to step outside of confusion. You've got to step, want to step outside of compulsion, the 
compulsions that we have. These compulsions, let me just explore this a little further. These compulsions, of course, drive us in similar patterns of behavior. I spoke about this last night, very briefly, about these feelings of deja vu that we often have, about the kind of making mistakes that we've made again and again and again, and I referred you to that quotation by Lawrence Darrell saying that we don't learn anything from history at all. Well, it's very equally true, as I said last night, that we don't learn anything often from our mistakes. We keep repeating them. There is a compulsion to repeat, to keep on doing the same things, almost as if we've only got a very limited palette of colours and we keep using the same palette of colours, never extending the range, never extending anything new to, if you like, colouring the world. So that we only see it through this one particular miasma of a certain set of colours. That compulsive pattern that we're engaged in has a very specific name. Some of you who've read any books on Buddhism will know this. It's usually known as sangsara. And the word sangsara actually indicates that. It indicates circularity. The whole notion of sangsara was built on an ancient Indian premise of birth, death and rebirth. Continuing in the cycle, being born, living, dying, and being reborn again and again and again. Until you learn. When I was teaching at uh, Bristol University, I used to uh, show one very particular, um, fairly popular Hollywood movie to indicate this. Some of you might have guessed what this is. It's Groundhog Day. (laughs) That's the most beautiful illustration of rebirth. (laughs) A very long learning process. (laughs) A very, very long learning process. Now in traditional Buddhism, which I'm not going to just mention, just for for the sake of the fact it's a major part of the Buddhist traditions, is literally that idea of being born, dying, and being reborn again. Until you achieve liberation from the behaviours that keep you bound to this cycle of rebirth. However, you're doing this all the time. This is not just about this life, next life, past lives, future lives. It's about this life. Because actually that cycle of repetition, that cycle of compulsion, is going on now, right at this second. the predilections to think in certain ways, to get anxious about certain things, to worry about certain things, to want certain material things in your life, to want certain relationships. There is this sort of compulsion to keep on repeating and doing again and again. And so kind of rhetorical question, is there any wonder that we end up making the same mistakes? This is very much a case of born again and again and again and again and again and again Buddhism. You know, in the sense of we keep on finding ourselves in each moment in a new rebirth. Carrying the same old stuff with us. Which then becomes our future. 
So it's a very different way of thinking of the temporality of this, the time cycles of this, that everything is happening now, your past, your present, and your future. Your past is sitting with you now, in your present, and actually if we don't do anything about it, it becomes our future. So the patterns of, for example, looking to material things to provide us with something they can never do, unless we start to break that pattern, it just gets keeping being repeated. It just gets, it's just recycled. We just do it again. It might be a different object, but here we are doing it again. Now the Buddha likened this, and it's very again a graphic image. He likened it to a dog sitting outside of a butcher's shop, being thrown a bone which has actually got no flesh on it at all, and the dog keeps chewing this bone again and again and again, trying to find nutrition in it. And in a way, that's the human situation. We keep doing the same thing again and again. It's almost like we're in a state of radical disbelief that this thing can't provide us with what we're looking for. it's like if you settle on any habit, why do you keep being bound to habit? You can't believe that it's not going to deliver at some point. So there's this sense of radical disbelief that what I'm doing isn't going to succeed at some point in time. Um, And the Buddha is really trying to show us, actually, we're just like that dog. We're chewing it again and again and again and again. And no matter how many times we do it, it will not provide us with the nutriment that we seek with the contentment, happiness, whatever word works for you, but certainly the liberation from this distress. This is what the Buddha is really speaking about, this liberation from this fundamental distress, this tendency, as I said last night, to keep putting in that second arrow, that second dart, into the wound, And in a way, this is the condition that we are in. Now, I'm speaking very negatively tonight because I'm trying to, in some senses, to set up the diagnosis, what the problem is, just equally as the way the Buddha does when he tries to speak about this. To know how to get things right, you have to know what is wrong. It's no good going in trying to present solutions until you know what the problem is. It's like trying to hand out somebody some medicine when you actually haven't diagnosed the disease yet. And so this is very much based on that kind of, of you know, medical diagnosis, of trying to set it up, find out what the problem is in all of its manifestations, and then try to, you know, once you've discerned that there is a cause to it, that that cause can be dealt with, to set up then a regimen back to health. And that's exactly what the Buddha is trying to do. And part of that regimen back to health is this thing we're engaged in doing over this retreat, which is actually within the the Eightfold Path is known as right mindfulness and right concentration, together with right effort as well. These are absolutely essential. These are the three essential components They're not the only ones because it's an eightfold path. But these are three essential components of this regimen back to health. So it's identifying the problem, identifying its range and reach, and seeing actually not just 
intellectually, but literally starting to look into our own lives at those patterns that we create. Patterns of attraction and repulsion. Here's a really easy one. Attraction and repulsion. The way we'll move away from what we consider to be difficult or unpleasant. The way we'll gravitate much more towards what is pleasant. You have a direct insight into that immediately when you sit. Immediately when you sit. If there is a nice mental state that arises, you want to hold on to it. If it's an unpleasant one, you want to move away from it as quickly as possible. If there is a pleasant sensation in the body, that's okay. If there is an unpleasant one, you will shuffle around. And in a way, that's just showing you directly how we react. So we're talking here about patterns of reactivity. Not patterns of activity, but simply patterns of reactivity. So most of our lives, not entirely, because if there was nothing, if there was no glimpses or cracks in all of this, there would be no room for manoeuvre, there would be no room for growth. But for the most part, we often are just working within those patterns of reactivity, working in with, within these patterns of simply what is familiar. Now the Buddha is recommending... Really, and this is the strong recommendation that comes out of all of the early texts, is giving up what is familiar. He actually uses it very specifically in relationship to people becoming monks and nuns. He's actually saying, moving from home, security, into homelessness, insecurity. There is nothing... Um, yeah, you, this is a bit of a catch, actually, when you're ordained as a monk or a nun in, this tradition, in these traditions, Buddhist traditions. You think you're going to have a place to live, and they said the only place you have to live is the foot of a tree. <laughs> yeah, that's the only security you've got. Yeah, and there's other ones as well. But there's very minimal things that you can rely on in this life. Yeah, very, very minimal things. Now, obviously... Buddhism in the West and this path in the West, it's the path of meditation, whether you want to call it Buddhism or not. The path of meditation that many people engage in now for all sorts of reasons is not a path of moving from that literal sense of the householder's life into the monastic life. But there is still that movement from the movement from security into uncertainty into what, actually, one Tibetan teacher called the wisdom of insecurity. There is a great wisdom to that insecurity. And clinging to nothing, holding on to nothing, so that we're literally not grasping after anything in this world. Grasping, again, causes us to be bound to patterns and forms and ways of existing that we simply keep repeating because, actually, one way of describing sangsara, again, I wished I'd coined this, it wasn't my way, it's one way I had it described many, many years ago, was that sangsara was just one big bad habit. Yeah. That's what sangsara is. It's one huge bad habit that we keep doing again and again and again and again. Yeah. So the question really has to come 
for anybody, I think, engaging in this path, and you can only answer it, is how much do you want to give up? How much do you want to give up the so-called securities of misery for the insecurities of something else which is possible? Which actually was what the Buddha identifies as freedom from bondage. Freedom from being bound to those patterns of behavior which keep us enslaved to dukkha, to keep on throwing darts in. Now, we'll hear this, you know, as throwing the dart in in just ordinary conversation. What's your chattering mind when it gets stuck in a situation it doesn't like? Being something. It's saying being stuck in a traffic jam. Something of that sort. Or things are not going your way, the way that you want them to go for you. Just watch what the mind is doing. Just often watch what you're verbalizing about this, what I, I really hate this. <laughs> well, there's kind of a version immediately. You know? So these patterns of speech actually are also incredibly indicative of what's going on in our mental states and show, you know, actually these patterns of being bound to certain reactivities. You know? I love that. I simply love that. Or I really hate that. Yeah. I so dislike it when you do X. These are all so indicative, as I say, of craving and aversion. These two really things which keep us bound, these psychological qualities that keep us bound. Now the Buddha goes even further and says that actually all of the unwholesome psychological states that we engage in, in other words, unwholesome psychological states don't remain as unwholesome psychological states, they get enacted. They come out in forms of behavior. They come out, as I've said, in forms of speech, speech behaviors. All of the unwholesome psychological states we have that arise are bound to those three roots. Craving or greed, aversion, or hatred, and delusion. And yet we can see these arising again and again and again in our experience. Actually, it's partly what we're going to go on and look at later on and bring some awareness into where these are occurring, just watching what's going on in thought, just to see where there is greed, where there is craving, where there is aversion, where there is delusion. Sometimes we can have the illusion that we're getting somewhere and something catches you out. Um, There's a lovely story, actually some of you might have read this book, it's it's a lovely story by Larry Rosenberg who wrote one of the books I really do recommend you to read if you haven't read it, called Breath by Breath. And he's a a meditation teacher in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the uh, Cambridge Insight Meditation Centre. Um, but he said he had this wonderful um, experience one day of sitting on the cushion. He said he thought he was really getting somewhere. He felt calm. The mind had settled until the dinner bell rang. And he said he was off his cushion like a greyhound out of a trap. <laughs> you know, it's that quick. <laughs> One of the things that we don't see, of course, is craving arising. 
We don't see aversion arising. Yeah. More often than not, we don't see craving arising for a chocolate bar. We feel it is we're eating it. <laughs> yeah. We don't feel aversion rising for something, arising for something, but we find ourselves avoiding. We find ourselves in the process, in the mode of behavior of avoiding something. What we're doing by bringing awareness into all of this is starting to slow down the reactivity of the mind by introducing this word, which I'm going to talk quite a bit about as we go through the week, this word sati, which actually is the word that gets translated as either awareness, which is my preferred translation of it, or mindfulness. To bring mindfulness or awareness into what is actually going on. So we begin to see it, to literally see it, rather than simply be caught in modes of behavior. So what we've engaged in tonight is really looking at the problem, trying to sort of palpate the problem a little bit. The problem is one of reactivity. The problem one is of greed, aversion, ultimately delusion. Greed and aversion are the two big poles of our behavior we see. Again, it has to be a question for yourselves whether I want to give up patterns of reactivity, whether I want to give up being bound to greed and aversion. Because actually these are intrinsic to samsaric behavior. Yeah, to this going round in circles. Yeah. Finding ourselves caught in this circularity of behavior where we feel often entrapped. I don't know if this is you know, for yourselves, but again, you have to look at it within your own lives and see if you feel this sense of entrapment. Entrapment by things sometimes often feel outside of our control. Habits being one, cravings for things being the other. Yeah. There's one thing about habit is um, once you've done something and then you do it again, it becomes far easier to keep doing it. Just psychologically, once you've broken some kind of taboo even, um, it's far easier to keep on engaging in that behavior. Uh, Rilke, the uh, German language poet, actually put it in a far more poetic way. He said it was the habit that moved in and didn't leave. The habit that actually ingratiates itself into your life and then doesn't leave and then becomes who you think you are. And that, again, often means a degree of relinquishment because who we think we are is often tied up with a lot of habit. So much so that if you've ever had somebody point out a habit to you, you often feel very personally under attack. You know, have you ever had this happen to you? Somebody says, well, you've got a really irritating little habit. You keep, and you go, something like, well, that's the way I am. <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> and what it really is is saying I can't change. Yeah, I really, really can't change. Now, what the Course of Buddha is trying to make us aware of is when by introducing awareness into this, we become, we start to introduce something which starts to split the chain of reactivity just by becoming aware of it. So that we're no longer so absolutely bound to that form of behavior. Awareness, in some senses, is everything. It's not everything 
in the sense of it's going to accomplish the whole path, but it certainly is essential. It's certainly essential. Other dimensions which I'm going to go on and talk about, I'm going to stop in a second. Other dimensions I'm going to talk about is that we have to have awareness coupled with friendliness and compassion as well. It's no good simply to just see something. In a way, we have to learn to be friendly towards what we see. And even if that is the most distressing thought you've ever had, because the biggest anxiety that's ever ran through your mind, run through your mind, then rather treating rather than treating it as an enemy, something again I spoke a little bit about last night, we can treat it much more as a passing friend. Most of this form of behaviour, most of these mental states, rather than being treated as absolute impediments, absolute blockages on the path, can be seen as things that we literally go through. They're doors. They're actually portals or doors towards liberation. I'll say more about this as we go through the week. So that we don't have to treat negative mental states as all things I have to get rid of. Um, I've been a good Buddhist for however many years or doing this practice for however many years. I'm still having these thoughts. I shouldn't be having them. (laughs) Well, you are. (laughs) Ultimately, of course, they become worse when we treat them as enemies. There becomes, again, the tendency to want to repress them, to move away from them. Embrace them. Embrace your monsters. Make them good, cuddly monsters instead. That way you can make them doorways to liberation as opposed to impediments to liberation. So when we start talking about negative states of mind, it's not meant to help us to beat ourselves up or to make us feel even guiltier about the way we are, but simply by seeing the operations of the mind so that we can delve deeply into them and pass through them. Also, without taking them too seriously or too personally. But I'll say more about that tomorrow night. (laughs) Okay, well, as usual, I'll kind of leave a few minutes for comments or things people want to say about what was said either last night or tonight. Or questions, if there are questions that arise as a result of that. I can see one right at the back in the dim glooming... (laughs) I think it's important I think it's an important question because when we talk about Changing the world, well, the first thing, I mean, it's a rather glib comment, but I'll say it anyway, which is the world's going to change anyway. Yeah, there's that point about it. But to change the world for what we perceive to be the better, yes, engage in actions which will hopefully bring that about. If you can, if it's within your, if it's within your area of expertise or your area of concerns, then certainly engage in this is not This is not a recipe for sort of quietism of just sitting there and letting the status quo take its you know take its um work itself out 
I think that there has to be action. I mean, the Buddha, in many ways, was a great social activist. I mean, he was he was completely turning up. I won't go into it, but he was certainly certainly turning his society on its head, basically by reinterpreting everything within that society. We can learn a lot from that um, in the sense of social activism. But the important thing was he did his activism, and perhaps this is something we need to think about. He did his activism out of compassion, not out of anger. He did it out of a form of compassion, like out of literally caring for others. But I think there's one thing that actually doesn't... It's often mentioned in the Buddhist tradition, but not so much highlighted. It comes out of the Hindu tradition. I think it's very important. There's something that Krishna says to Arjuna in the Gita, in the Bhagavad Gita. It says, to engage in action without being attached to their fruit. Now, because actually, often when we engage in action, particularly social activism, we get very angry when it doesn't go our way. You know? Um, but actually, if you think about it, there are so many um, things outside of our control in any given situation. You know, so many different streams of action which are operative on any given situation that to think that we could have control over them all means often, A, we're very deluded, but the other thing is that often the, you know, the way we want it to go is actually not going to happen at all because there's things that we're blind to things literally we don't see. To engage in that action out of compassion and hope that it will happen, but not to be too attached if it doesn't, I think is the other thing. I think it's worth adding into that. Because otherwise, again, hatred and anger can really rear its head if, if you don't actually end up getting what you intended out of any given set of, say, social activism or something like that. Yeah. Those are kind of just passing reflections, really what you said but it, it's not I'd really 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 not and emphasize that it's not a path of simply sitting on your cushion and doing nothing actually I think in the modern world um, and there's many you know, there's many exponents of this I think actually Buddhist practice really can be responsible for introducing elements and values into a dialogue which is the evolving of western civilization at the moment I think yeah, I think it's already doing that. It's starting to contribute certainly psychological ideas and ideas of ethics and that into this conversation, which is the unfolding of, of Western culture here. And that's a big part of the social activism as well, getting things like, for example, corporate greed discussed. <laughs> you know, because greed isn't just individual. You know, we see it, obviously, within us as individuals, but what we see on a social psychological level is greed written large. In social, in social situations and corporate situations. So I think we need to question those things. Corporate greed, corporate hatred, corporate delusion, you know, social hatred, social delusion, you know, social greed. All of these things, I think these are things that also need questioning as well. And that's where I think you know, as, as practitioners, uh, people can do a lot. Actually. Oops, there and there and there. Mm-hmm. For example, avoid a toxic situation, mm-hmm. seeing that or go in in this. Or per- perhaps a special I uh, have my family, 
Chile. And they've done a lot of a lot of work to avoid damages from earthquakes, mm -hmm. with the result that they after this terrible earthquake in Chile not died so much people as for example in Haiti, where they've not cared about this thing. Mm -hmm. Well, my response to that is it's not that sort of avoidance that's being talked about. That, in a sense, is not the kind of avoidance the Buddha's really expressing. I mean, obviously, to try and create safe environments as, as much as you possibly can is, is sensible. You know, it's probably part of our evolutionary mechanism as well to actually try and create environments which are relatively safe, like you know, in a country like Chile, which suffers from lots of earthquakes. So it's not really that type of avoidance. It's more of a psychological avoidance of always wanting to avoid difficulty, of avoiding the difficult emotions, not dealing with them, not dealing with somebody's anger, not putting yourself in a situation that um, you would possibly think distressing. All of the strategies of avoidance that you find, particularly in, I think in the Western world, um, through the uses of things like drugs and alcohol, too much television. You know, these are all strategies of avoidance, avoidance of life's difficulties, and I mean existential difficulties, you know, not literally physical difficulties, but the existential difficulties. And that's those that the Buddha really is concerned about. You know? but, because actually we can't control them. A lot of those difficulties just naturally arise. They're just part of life. They're just part and parcel of life. So the Buddha is really trying to get us to see ways of dealing with these things, you know, psychologically, so that we're not compelled into behaviours which actually end up as being destructive. You know? So that's the reason why he uses the same word, tanha, craving. It's the craving to avoid certain things, you know, the desire to avoid certain things. I don't think he's really meaning the sort of things that you were talking about, like you know, making your building stronger and, and that if you live in an earthquake zone. What I think he's really meaning is, is mainly psychological difficulties. Yeah. So there's a, there's, a, you know, there's a sense to trying to sort out, sort out physical things, such as you describe, um, but it's looking at where the other kind of difficulties, the avoidance of difficulties, takes us. And it often takes us into yet greater forms of distress, into greater forms of dukkha. You know, some of those becoming very, very self-destructive as well. It's like another strategy of avoidance which Western people are extremely good at. It's called repression. Um, but as we know, you can't keep a good repression down. <laughs> yeah. At some point, it's going to come up again. Uh, and often in a much more distressing fashion than when it first you know, was repressed. Because actually in its repression, you've started to feed it. Made it much, much bigger. Every repression is being fed. It's being watered and nourished in some way. Until eventually it makes itself known yet again. 
It's that sort of thing the Buddha really is talking about, and that's what I was trying to indicate by avoidance. But it's open also to a question, what do we really need? Because also in Chile, some people are so fearful that they, to, they take so much energy that they are suffering because they're working yeah. so hard. That's right. To make all sure, to make all safe. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's sensible measures you take, and there's measures that go beyond that which then be, uh, become obsessive-compulsive again. Um, there's one thing I mentioned very briefly last night, and I will, this is something I'll pick up in one of the talks you know, and go into quite a bit of detail. It's about this thing that we call papancha. What it actually has, papancha is this um, tendency to proliferate or spread out thinking. It has another term in Pali, which is papancetti, which actually means to obsess about something. So not only do we spread it out, we kind of obsess about it. And all of our thinking goes round in circles, round this. So, for example, that fear that you talk about, now fear has been put at the centre, and all of our thinking obsesses about that particular fear and goes round and round and round it. It literally takes over lives in that way. So, therefore, it becomes yet another manifestation of dukkha. It becomes another manifestation of distress. Yeah. But I'll, I'll say more about that on one of the, one of the other evenings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, activism. Activism can take many, many forms. It can take many. It can take on very hands-on forms, but it can take on that kind of form itself as well. Yes, an unmoving demonstration, <laughs> perhaps. I know. <laughs> I think there's always that danger. I think there's always a danger. This is why, for example, and you can't always guarantee how people are going to take it, that one of the things, particularly when we get to insight meditation, which is full acknowledgement, full acknowledgement of what is there. It's not running away from it. So if, if it is, for example, as I said, your worst anxiety arising, it's being with it, acknowledging it, befriending it, really seeing it. That sounds easy sitting, as I say, in this position. But it's really to encourage people to go through that process and not run away from it. Because as soon as you start to run away from it, then there's that tendency to repression. So literally, meditation is this waking up to whatever is. This is why um, it's often referred to as non-judgmental awareness. It doesn't judge what is good or bad. It sees its feeling tone, which is often pleasant or unpleasant. And sticks with that. So you can stick with something unpleasant as well as you can stick with something pleasant. But the whole point about this is no matter what it is, and this is why it doesn't become repression, if you really do start to go and engage in that process of starting to acknowledge, to see, and I don't say it it happens easily, but if you do start to engage in that process, particularly if it's something that is coming up, 
um, repeatedly, you'll get more and more familiar with it. It'll be less and less uncomfortable to deal with. To, well, not even to deal with, because you're not going to do anything with it. You're just going to be with it. That's all. And I would, you know, one of the things I said last night, and hopefully this is the heartening side of the process, whatever arises passes away. You know, it might come back again, but it will arise and pass away. And part of the familiarization, sensitization process is seeing actually every time it arises, it's not the same thing. It's never the same thing. It often has a different intensity to it. Um, it often has other things mixed with it. That if we just have a narrative in it, a narrative about whatever the problem is, then it tends to get homogenized. And we don't see the fluctuations and variations and the actually what's going on with it. So it's much more about embracing than it is ever repressing. But I do know what she means, because I do think there can be a tendency to keep projecting your mind to the beautiful, the better, the good, the wholesome. Well, actually, this process is about kind of getting to know yourself as you are with everything. Yeah. Uh, It's useful just to keep meditating. <laughs> and I mean that because there's no guarantee what's going to happen, even when you do want to. Even when you do want to. You're not, there's no guarantee that you're going to get the kind of thought processes that you want or you're going to get a lovely, concentrated, stilling experience or anything like that. You know, it's, it's very, very much on a you know, sort of sitting-by-sitting sitting basis. Yeah. So it's a process of just kind of keep on doing it. The one thing that I really do encourage people to do is to go to, whenever you do your meditation, to go to your cushion with a sense of joy about it. Because you know, another thing that can end up happening, and perhaps this is slightly off your question, but I think it's often related to it, is there can be a sense of dread. And it becomes yet another habit. Meditation becomes another habit. I do it because now I'm a meditator. <laughs> And that's what I do. I do my 45 minutes every morning or whenever you do it or do it twice a day. But there's, not, there's kind of loss of joy in the doing of it. And perhaps one thing I really want to stress, and I did mention it very briefly last night, is this sense of when I sit, actually because one time, A, because, God, isn't it incredible what goes on in your mind? <laughs> you know, just the, isn't it amazing what just goes on when you sit and close your eyes and just try to follow the breath? You know? And how you'll suddenly find yourself off somewhere else. And out of that, almost a sense of wonder about what's going on, aren't you curious about it? Interest in it? To see how that's occurring? How these patterns of thought keep arising? Now, I think it's actually sustaining interest and, and, and enjoyment and curiosity which helps to sustain the freshness of sitting and helps you to come back to the cushion with a sense of joy, not a sense of dread about what's going to happen. Because when we have that sense of dread, it becomes a penance. That's what I mentioned last night about making your lives even more miserable. <laughs> you know, we come to it with perhaps a sense of enjoyment, a sense of joy, because there's curiosity and interest on in what's going on in the process. And actually knowing that actually things can change through it as well. You know, but again, more of that later. Just one other question. When you spoke about um, embracing in 
Mm. I can interpret that in a very literal way, which um, encourages me to think about giving up my job to pursue yoga teaching more. Mm-hmm. You kind of wrote that, which in some ways is going to be uncertain and insecure if I try and do that. Are there other more subtle metaphorical ways I can think about it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, there are. I mean, those are obvious ways of doing it. I'm sort of giving up things in the material world and making changes which open up possibilities but also quite you know um, could go either way when you open yourself up to that but yes it's more like the securities and certainties that I look for in life psychologically you know for example for somebody to always be the same with me you know say a parent or a loved one or something like something to, to somehow always reflect back to you what you want um, for something always to be in your life, you know, to know that change is possible, and that something and some people will not always be in your life; they will drop out of your life. Um, but just the kind of certainties, almost of habit, that we have. Now, I don't know if this sounds like certainties, but they very much are. I know who I am because I do certain things in my life. It's part of how we construct identity. You know, I am who I am because I'm a bunch of habits a lot of the time. Now, it's letting go of that in a way, or certainly starting... Letting go is a strong word. Let's put it in a slightly different way. Starting to investigate that. Starting to investigate that and to slightly tease the knot apart of who you actually think you are, you know, uh, and see that perhaps there are greater possibilities there than you ever imagined. You know, that we've actually limited ourselves by our certainties about who I think I am through my various habits or whatever. Um, but certainly opening up to a sense of the unexplored. You know, so that's how I would see it in a much more psychological sense as opposed to simply a material sense. Although they, they're not mutually exclusive, they actually invade each other. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.